Nat King Cole sings The kids and the presents here are all wrapped up One day it's okay to make a fuss It's fantastic Between the mistletoe and the magic It's as good as it gets But the fact is You're better than Christmas Day Welcome to Cornerstone Church. Come on, man. This is loud, the rowdy crowd. Let's get this going here. My name is Scott. I want to welcome everybody joining us at Cornerstone Online as well as all the campuses. And those of you at the 5 o'clock service right here in Chandler every single Sunday night, tis the season. Tis the season where God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that's something to be grateful for, isn't it? I'm also in this season, I think, this is a season where I, I love to think about kids. We have three of them, and I just love the, the Christmas season when it comes to kids. And kids are so, they're just amazing. They're so funny. They're so honest. And that sometimes makes them really funny. I want to read you a few things here about some kids who wrote a note to God. Do you want to hear this? Yes. I don't believe you. Do you want to hear this? All right. Here's one kid says this. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I'm having a hard enough time loving all of them. <laughs> Another kid says, dear God, how do you decide who to marry? And it looks like they come to a quick conclusion. He says, well, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> there was a class that had a bunch of kids uh, talk about the Christmas story and write some of what they remembered about the Christmas story from the Bible. And they said in a specific question, tell us about what you remember with the wise men who brought the gifts to Jesus. So five-year-old boy named Jason writes, well, the wise men brought Jesus presents of gold and silver, but I think he would have preferred wrestling toys. <laughs> what is a wrestling toy? I don't get that. David, a six-year-old boy, says, I don't know what the wise men brought Jesus, but I would have given him a tin of biscuits. I think Mary and Joseph would have liked a biscuit. And I'll tell you, you put some gravy on those biscuits, go like a oh, Cracker Barrel on that stuff, I'm in, man. Bring it. The last kid, age six, writes, the wise men brought gold stuff for Jesus, but a Lego set would have been much better. <laughs> boys will be boys. Well, today we begin a brand new series titled Unwrapped. And we're going to launch it by looking at one of the most often repeated statements that Jesus made in the Bible. And it's in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. And it says this, it is more blessed to give than receive. Very famous statement. But what does Jesus mean by that? Is he literally saying it's more blessed to give Lego sets and wrestling toys and biscuits? Is that what he really means? Does Jesus, when he says it's more blessed to give than receive, does he mean bicycles and ugly sweaters and Starbucks gift cards? I mean, what does he really mean when he says it's more blessed to give than receive? In this series, we're going to ask some really interesting questions. And one of them is can a gift change someone's life? I suppose it could, depending on what it is, right? 
Can a gift make an eternal difference? Good question. One that's interesting to me is, when is a gift more than a gift? I got to confess something to you right out of the gate here. When I go Christmas shopping for my wife Shelly or our kids and I'm doing it alone, trying to wrap it up on December 24th, 6 p.m. kind of thing, right guys, you know what I'm talking about? I go shopping and every single time, not only do I hopefully get a gift for someone in the family, but I walk away with something for me. Anybody else do that? Come on, it's okay, it's a safe place, confess it. You, ever, you go shopping and you think, man, that wrench is awesome. I don't know what it does, but it's only eight bucks. It was $30 two weeks ago. I've got to get it. The, the, the selfish part of me just jumps out. Scott, you got to get your, so you got to walk out of here with some stuff in your bag, man. You're Christmas shopping. You're in the spirit of the holidays. And I end up buying myself some things. But what happens when we read the Bible, we quickly see a number of themes emerge out of Scripture. And one of the significant themes is that for those of us who would say that we're followers of Jesus or Christians, that God is calling us to an ever-increasing life of selflessness, putting others first. I mean, it's all over the Bible. You think about it. What's sometimes called the great commandment when Jesus says in the, in the latter half of it, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Another statement, he says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The golden rule, right? Or this statement in Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than receive. You just can't get away from this calling to live a more selfless life, to put other people first. And what's interesting about that is, from my perspective, it seamlessly uh, uh, integrates with another significant theme in Scripture, and that is that God very very much cares and is concerned for the poor, for the destitute, and for the broken people in this world. He passionately cares. And if you and I are followers of Jesus, what happens is when we follow him, God's concern for those who are hurting becomes our concern for those who are hurting. It's like we follow Christ, there's this, this spiritual gravitational pull towards the broken places and broken lives in our world. When we follow Jesus, he leads us into some tough situations to help those who are hurting. God's concern for those in need becomes our concern for those in need. And then he requires us to do something about it. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 John, way towards the back, chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 16. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And here's what God's word says to us. This is how we know what love is. Now check that out. I could walk up to one of you guys and say, hey, bro, man, I love you. And you could, oh, I love you too, man. What, what's that? Do you really know if I love you or do I know if you love me back? What, there's no proof in that. It's just a simple statement. But God goes right to the jugular on this and he says, this is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for other people. Well, what's that look like? It goes on. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Kind of catches my attention. How can the love of God be in him? 
when I first gave my life to Christ, I was pretty serious about my faith. I was realizing that, hey, man, if, if Jesus is really the Son of God, if he really died on the cross and rose again, if God is even real, and if this Bible is true, this could really change the trajectory of my life. So I took the first year of following Christ, and I called it my year of monkhood, where I just went all in, kind of in my cave, and committed almost all of my time to studying the scriptures, to trying to figure out, okay, what does this book say that I've now said, hey, I'm one of those. I believe that stuff. Well, I want to know, what is it then that I believe? Because do I really believe it? And I went to a great church who taught the Bible, and I learned so much. I was there almost every time the doors were open. I was single, had a bunch of time on my hands, and I kind of just went into the cave for that year. And when I was doing that, something else was happening on the inside of me. It was a desire that became overwhelming to share what God was doing in my life with other folks, to share it with people who may, don't, who may not know who Christ is. And in addition to that, I had this desire to, to go help people who were hurting, People, people who lacked or had a dire need for the basics of life, like food and clothing and shelter. Justice, equality, opportunity. So much, I began to see the value of every human being because I began to experience the depth of the love that God had for me. Everybody matters to God. You matter to God. I matter to God. The person sitting next to you matters to God. Your in-laws matter to God. Cat lovers matter to God, believe it or not. It's amazing. Everyone matters. The value of every person is so great. And when we follow Christ, our, we, we become concerned for those who are lacking in those necessities. And so I started to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to live this stuff out? And so our church had this thing that was like an outreach ministry on Saturday nights downtown. That language may sound foreign to you. It was kind of foreign to me. I didn't know what that meant. It was kind of that whole Christian subculture language, like outreach ministry. What, what in the world is that? Well, I went one night on a Saturday night, and it was really late at night because I was just like, I got to go do something with this. I want to like, help someone know Christ. And so I drove downtown, went there, and it was really late. Nobody was there. So, oh, dang, what am I going to do now? So I waited. I went the next weekend, and I got hooked on what was going on. I was one of those guys, one of those guys that was feeding folks who were living on the streets. I was one of those guys going under the bridges, talking to men who were living in cardboard boxes. And they would ask some great questions that I did not have answers to. It was very humbling. I was one of those guys who'd walk around the housing projects and knock on doors to pray with people. No, I did not have a white shirt and a black tie and a really nice mountain bike. Wasn't that deal at all. It was just some Joe going out saying, man, I love Jesus and I think he wants to help in your situation. And I was doing that for a while and the, the leader of the whole thing says, Scott, man, you're really involved. What I want you to do is come out here on Monday nights because that's when we bus in about 75 kids from the housing project and we do church for these kids. And I talked about this a little before. And just come on out and check it out. I was like, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't want to go do that. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a kid guy. I don't even like kids, man. They're snotty. They got cooties. They drive me crazy. I mean, I didn't have kids yet. And I didn't want to have anything to do it. But because I respected the guy, I said, all right, I'll do it. I'll go check it out. So I go over there on a Monday night. And there's about 75 kids from the housing project in there. It's really loud. They're going all over the place. And as soon as I walk in, I was a little bit late. The lady who was running the deal saw me and she's like, Scott, come here. 
I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? I just want to hang out and be a fly on the wall. I don't want to have to do anything here. She says, Scott, come over here. I want to introduce you to someone. And she introduces me to this little eight-year-old boy named Demario. And she says, Scott, this is Demario. Demario, this is Mr. Scott. Scott, Demario is being very disruptive tonight and very distracting. Can you take him to the back of the room here and just sit with him and keep an eye on him? So Demario, you go with Mr. Scott. So I took Demario to the back of the room, the same room that we were all in. I pulled up two chairs, one for me and one for him. And I kind of did it facing each other. And I, I says, uh, say, hey, Demario, my name's Scott, and uh, are you okay? Because you could literally look into this boy's eyes and just see the, the anger, like seething anger, like he was just ready to bust out and hurt somebody. Demario, are you, are you all right? What, is there anything I can do for you? And he just stared at me, totally silent. Out of nowhere. Bam! He just blasts me right in the face. I mean, just, I'm not, now I'm not talking like Johnny from Paradise Valley, slap on the cheek kind of stuff. I'm talking about a boy who lives in the projects, who's learned how to fight, who does not have a father, who has a mom who's sleeping with different men for drugs every night. Who's, he, he is sleeping on a folded out lawn chair for his bed. His refrigerator is full of cockroaches and he's living in a very, very destitute, dire situation. That's what his apartment was like. That's the boy who jacked me in the jaw. And two things happened when he hit me. The first one was a thought of, okay, boy, you want to go be with Jesus right now, don't you? This is it. We're done. I did not sign up for this. Let's take you there right now. That was my first thought, and thank goodness I didn't, I didn't act on that thought. The second one was simultaneously in my heart was this strong sense that said, Scott, this boy needs you in his life. And I was like, well, no way, no, don't be going there. None of that stuff. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that looks. What am I going to do for this kid? I have nothing to offer. I don't come from this situation. What am I going to do? But that wasn't, I didn't have to have the answer. God's heart for those who were hurting became my heart because I was following him. And that punch in the face began eight years of investing our life into the kids in the inner city housing project and ultimately turned into 13 years of being a children's pastor. I'll tell you what, children's pastors are the heroes of the local church. They're awesome, aren't they? They're amazing. Well, at some point, God demoted me and said, just talk to the big kids, all right? So you're out of that business. But I did it for 13 years. And I'll tell you, you want to know how to really get clarity on God's call for your life? Get close to someone who's hurting, look them in the eye, ask a few ignorant questions, and just wait for them to punch you in the face. <laughs> God's going to get your attention. That's how he got mine. It's amazing when we get in close proximity to those who are hurting, how God gets our heart. It just happens. I didn't walk in there expecting to do anything but go through the motions, get it out of the way, respecting the man who invited me to go, and it ended up being the next 13 years of my life. God's concern for those in need becomes our concern for those in need if we're following him. But then he just takes it to other levels. Because I think God's concern for those in need 
requires us to be content so that we can become generous. Let me, let me say that again. God's concern for those in need requires those of us who are followers of Jesus, Christians, to be content with what we have so that we can become more generous to help those in need. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 if you've got it on your mobile device or sitting on your lap. And let me first pull back and give some context here because it's all talking about those who are rich in this world. Do you realize, I read this recently, that one per, the 1% the, the of the richest people in the world actually own 46% of the world's wealth. The World Bank tells us that the 20, top 20% of the richest people in the world consume 76.6% of the stuff in the world. And that over half of the people in the world, over 3 billion, way over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. That's an annual income of $912 a year. Over half of the people on the planet. So I'm going to take a big risk here and I'm going to assume that probably everybody listening to this is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. You are a first world American and you're more wealthy than most of the rest of the people on the face of the earth. Sorry, it's just a fact. It's just a fact. With that in mind, 1 Timothy chapter 6, God is instructing those of us who are wealthy in his eyes. He says things like, you might have heard this before, like, like uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. The root, the love of money is the root of all evil. You heard that before? That's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not that, the, that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that begins to be the root of all evil. All that stuff is going on, and he's talking to those who have wealth. Go to verse, uh, I think it's 16, and check out what he says here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'm in chapter 6, I'm sorry, verse 17. Let's just get that right right now. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. To those who are rich in this world, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Flashback 2008, right? Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. This is Paul's there for just a minute. God wants us blessed. God, I think, takes pleasure when we take pleasure in his creation. So I would say, take the boat to Lake Havasu and have a blast and enjoy it with zero guilt. But don't stop there. Because he goes on, he says this. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others. Always being ready to share with others. You may have heard this before, seen it on the National Geographic channel when they talk about or they show how they often capture monkeys. It's kind of cruel to be honest with you. But they'll put something shiny on a coconut. Sound familiar? And they'll put something shiny on the coconut to draw the attention of the monkey and they'll actually drill a really small hole into the coconut that is attached to a tree or whatever it is and they'll squeeze something through there that, that monkeys like, something sweet or whatever that monkeys like. And so the monkey comes up, kind of doing his monkey life, about his monkey business, minding his own business, walks up, sees this coconut, sees the hole, however he does, he smells what's in there, he goes and he squeezes his little hand through that hole in that coconut, grabs on to what he wants so bad. And then he, he tries to 
pull his hand out and he can't get it out. Why? Because the hole is only big enough for him to get it, his hand through really tight with nothing in it. But he has in his hand a bunch of stuff and he can't get it out. And he's yanking on the thing, trying to get his arm out of there. And those who are hunting the monkey, or trying to capture the monkey, come up and they, they capture the monkey. When all he had to do was let go of what was in his hand in the coconut and he would have been free. But he was captured because of his own greed. And I often think about myself like, here I go again holding on to that stuff in my coconut, not letting go, restricting what God can do through my life because I'm so darn scared that I'm not going to have enough. Yes, Lord, I trust you with my eternal soul, but I really don't trust you with my temporary stuff. My scarcity takes over, and I hold it really, really tight, only to realize if I just let it go and hold it loosely, I'd be free in so many different levels in life. Trusting him and not trusting in what I have. Because what I have is what God has given me to meet my needs. But also there's a surplus for most of us or almost all of us to hold it loosely, to be compassionate and generous for others who need that in their life. God's concern for those in need requires us to be content so that we can become more generous and help other people. I have an idea of why Cornerstone Church is always an ever-expanding, always kind of growing and moving type of church. One of many, I'm sure, but I think one of the reasons that so much cool stuff is going on here is because Cornerstone Church is not all that Cornerstone Church cares about. Don't you think? You guys care about more than just what happens in Chandler or in Scottsdale, or at the Santan campus. You care about the city of Phoenix, and this area, and this region, and you care about things like the orphanage in Kenya that you guys get involved with, and Haruma, and the angel tree stuff going on, and on and on and on and on and on. You care more about that stuff than just Cornerstone Church. See God move in your life when you care more about other people than just yourself. Hold things more loosely so that God can put, move things through your life and not just to your life because we are stewards of what he's given us. God's concern for those in need becomes our concern for those in need when we are followers of Christ. God's concern for those in need requires us to be content so that we can become more generous. Now I get it. Now, it's not just Christians who care for other people. Compassion is hardwired in all of us. Some of us ignore it, but it's in all of us. But I would say this. You don't have to be a Christian to have compassion, but can you be a Christian if you don't have compassion? Chew on that, right? It gets very sobering for me because what we do for those in need becomes part of the conversation when we step into eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, this is like crazy stuff. And I didn't even ask him to put the text of, of the chapter on the screen. I want to encourage you, go home, read your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 25 and see what it says because you might even want to go back to chapter 24. In Matthew 24, they're talking about the end of the age and the disciples are saying, Jesus, okay, when are you going to come and set up your kingdom and when is the end of the world going to be here? It's kind of that epic stuff. And if you've read the Bible, you know that God says, hey, that's just for me to know and not you. No man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. 
But he does say, well, here are some signs of what might be going on in the world at that time. And that's going to be an indicator that the time is kind of near or on the way. But then it's interesting because he goes into Matthew 25. And he doesn't talk about the signs of the times, but he talks about the heart of those who follow him. And he deals with things like laziness and indifference and all this kind of stuff going on during that time. And at the end of Matthew 25, Jesus, he doesn't say it's a metaphor or a parable. He says, here's what's going to happen. He says, the son, of Ga- the son of Man, speaking of himself, is going to return in all of his glory. And all of the nations are going to be standing around at his feet. The human race. There's one race. It's the human race. It's all of us that are present. Those who've gone before us are somehow going to be standing at the feet of Christ in this grand moment. And in that moment, Jesus basically says, there's going to be a line drawn in the sand. And he says, like a shepherd who separates his sheep from the goats. On his right, this is my left, but for your perspective, right? On the right. On the right are the sheep, which he calls the righteous ones. And on the left are those whom he, he, he associates. He says, on the left are the goats. And then he turns to those on his right, and he says, he says welcome. Welcome into the kingdom of your father, the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the beginning of creation. And he immediately says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was a prisoner, you visited me. And those on his right, the righteous ones, he says, it's almost like they didn't even even realize it. As if they were living such a... God-honoring life, that what they were doing, they didn't realize the impact they were making. It was just the fruit of a relationship with Christ. They go, well, Lord, when, when did we ever see you hungry and give you something to eat? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When were you sick and we took care of you? When were you naked and we clothed you? When were you in prison and we visited you? And Jesus simply says, what you've done for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. Then he goes into a sobering place. And he looks at those on his left. I want to read it to you. Not for shock factor, but just to read the power of this. He says, then the king will turn to those on the left and he'll say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. That's a great way to kick off a Christmas series, isn't it? <laughs> Man, that's sobering stuff. You know what's interesting there? A little quick side note. God never created hell for you or for me. It's created for the devil and his demons. Hell is simply the, the absence of the presence and life of God. He created it for them, not us. But then, then he goes on, he says, I was hungry. And you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick, and you did not take care of me. I was a prisoner. You never came and visited me. And those on the left, they say, well, Lord, what, what are you talking about, man? Literally read it sometime. 
What, what, when, when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you thirsty and, and, and naked and sick and visit, you know, stranger and in prison? When, when? We didn't, we don't, I don't understand. I don't get that. And he simply says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you didn't do it for me. And then he says something that you don't necessarily read at bedtime with your kids. He says in verse 46, or verse, um, yeah, 46, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. <sighs> that contradicts what I know about God as I read my Bible, though. Because as I look all through Scripture and I see the heart of God and the nature of God and his character, that's not the God that so loved the world that gave his one and only son, is it? What's that all about? And it certainly can't mean that our forgiveness is based on the good things we do for other people. If you've read the Bible, we realize that's just not the case. Ephesians 2 says we're, we're not saved by works. It's, 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 it's a gift from God. It's our faith so that we can't boast. We know without a doubt that we stand before God forgiven and at peace 100% because of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Period. Nothing else can be added to it. Zero. So we know that's true. So is he contradicting it here? Is he saying, you got to feed people or you're, you're on the left? I think what he's saying here is not that. I think what he's saying here, though, is that, hey, if you really know who I am, if you really ask me to be the Lord and the Savior of your life, and you really follow me, what I care about, you're going to care about. And my care for those in need is going to become your care and your concern for those in need. And you're going to show the fruit of a lifestyle of caring for other people because you're a follower of Jesus and you're going to show it by having fed people who were hungry, having given water to people who didn't have it, having visited those in prison who were forgotten, marginalized. That's the fruit of a relationship. It's not where we get our forgiveness. It's just the proof is in the pudding. Hey, you love me? Let me see. Um, and I think, I'm thinking, man, is God that mean that he would just look and say with a scowl on his face with some sort of sense of twisted pleasure to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, and just kind of beat his chest with some sort of joy. I mean, that's not God. I can only speculate, but I'd imagine based on what we see of his heart, in scripture that he has a sense of just dread and sorrow, probably hating the day when this was going to happen, when he'd have to look into the eyes of those whom he deeply loves and gave his, own, his life for and say, away, you never followed me. How do I know? Well, one way I know is you never cared about those who are hurting. I like to change the oil in my car, in our vehicles. It's one of those things that I do to kind of like a, it's a project where I can start and I can stop and I can stand back and put my hands there and say, done, man. I rocked that one. Any guys, who in here changes their own oil? Put your hand up. This is like, yes, we are the minority. Never forget that. But I, I, really, I, I just enjoy it. It's like my time in the garage. I'm not a gearhead. I wrench on just that. When I got to do anything else, I go to YouTube, I'm like how to change a taillight kind of stuff to do it all. But I know how to change the oil, and I do it on our vehicles, and it's just, I, I really enjoy it. I learned a trick, though. 
Because when you're changing the oil, you get oil all over the place. I mean, you got to have the cardboard underneath the vehicle with the, the little oil dish. You cannot get oil on the floor or you are a loser. Just keep in mind, you cannot drip the oil, all right? Half to keep it clean. So I had a buddy helping me uh, change my brakes one time. And I was just kind of watching him. And he puts on latex gloves. And he's doing the, doing the brake job with latex gloves on. And I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. But I just realized, I'm like, man... He's not even getting his hands dirty. That's awesome. So I started wearing, as, funny as, as funky as they are to get on, you doctors, I don't know how you do it so fast, but I am not trained in how to put on latex gloves. <laughs> I started wearing latex gloves and I changed the oil, and it's super cool. Because I get under there, I, I you know, loosen the, the drain plug, and the oil comes out, and I do the filter, and the oil oil's running around here, and I get all that rigmarole done, change the oil, get everything back in, the plug in, fill it up. It's all good to go. And I just walk away, and I take off my latex gloves, throw them away. I can go eat chips and salsa, man, without even washing my hands. I can lick my fingers. I just changed the oil, honey. Hey. And it's just, I didn't even wash my hands. It's so cool. It's so cool. Now, there is one thing about Getting that grease in your fingernails, guys. I mean, that's cool. I mean, men love grease in our fingernails. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing. Just remember that. But I don't get them dirty at all. And it's sweet. But this doesn't work for being a follower of Christ. Trying to live a life for God with keeping our, keeping our hands clean, not wanting to get dirty. I'll pick on us for a minute, okay? All of us. You want to know what clean-handed latex gloves Christianity looks like? Having a Bible study in the coffee shop. I do it, and God speaks to me often in those settings, so please do that. But it keeps our, our hands are still pretty clean, aren't they? Going to our small group and studying scripture and learning about propitiation and sanctification and redemption and all those powerful, true things that we need to know about in our faith, but it's still clean hands. But when we follow Christ, he will lead us into some messy places where humanity is broken humanity is hurting because he cares about those who are hurt and destitute and poor we need to care about that and we need to be willing to just take off the gloves get our hands dirty you may not have the answers you may not even know what to do but just go immerse yourself in the pain of someone's world and see what God will do when is a gift back to our question when does a gift become more than a gift? It's in 1 Timothy 6. Go back to it real quick and I'm going to wrap up. We're going to read verse 18 again and then we're going to go to the next verse. We read this. Tell them in verse 18. Tell them to use their money to do good. It's not just money though. You guys get that, don't you? I mean, it's, it's a lot more than that, but that's just a piece of it. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And then here we go where we didn't read. The next verse. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. You want to experience some true life? When does a gift become more than a gift? A gift becomes more than a gift when it becomes a treasure. When you give it to someone, it's their gift in eternity, it becomes your treasure because God cares about those who are hurting. He's so good. He says when you gift them to help them, you have a reward. Not for forgiveness, not for love. It's just God's so good. He's like, it's your treasure, man. 
Can a gift save a life? Totally. Can a gift change a life for eternity? Go try it. See what happens. Let it become a treasure. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray for just a moment. So we'll take a moment just to um, create some space to, to ponder this for a few seconds. This may not be the best message you've ever heard, but that's not why we're here. It could be the most important message you've ever heard. Because God may be telling you right now, I want you to hold loosely what you have and invest in the lives of those who are hurting. God, I pray right now that you put in our minds and our hearts the faces of those who may need what we have. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to hold our stuff loosely so that we can be generous towards those in need. Lord, we're grateful that for the most part, we're some of the richest people on the earth compared to so many others. So let us walk humbly with that and be people of compassion and people who represent your heart in this world, God. And Lord, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.